When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. It's back to winning ways for City, but it wasn't all plain sailing in their victories over Arsenal and Porto. With periods of pressure, big saves from the goalkeeper and difficulty breaking down the opposition at various points in both games as well. But if you score your chances and you don't give up many for the other team, then I guess you've got to be doing something right, haven't you? Welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast, where we'll be looking into the last seven days at the Etihad. Also on this week's show, we'll cast an eye forward to games with West Ham and Marseille. Howard Hawking is looking at the reaction to the injury of the late Virgil van Dijk. And we'll also be taking a look at some of City's final games at now defunct stadiums. There is a reason. It's not just one of my harebrained ideas, I promise you. Well, okay, maybe just a little bit. I'm David Mooney. With me on this week's show is City fan Chris Higginbottom. Warmest autumnal greetings. And Goal.com's Jonathan Smith. Hello. No no warm autumnal greetings from you, John? Not from me, I'm afraid. Uh, how, are you, uh, how are you doing, Chris? Are you, uh, you feeling good and ready to, ready to go? Yeah, you know me. Uh, brimming with enthusiasm, as always. <laughs> Um, John, I'm going to start with you because um, I, I, I need some help in trying to work out these last two games because I can't decide if City were, were that good or not. Because, it, like I said in the intro, they, it felt like at times they were running through treacle in both games. But equally, they scored the chances and they didn't give up too many to the opposition. Yeah, if you're looking for an answer to that, I'm not sure I can provide it. Um, I mean, yeah, they've, they've, they've done enough, haven't they? Uh, there's, the thing that I've written... A couple of times already this season is the phrase survival of the fittest because I think that's what it's going to come down to when obviously injuries and illness have ripped through the squad in the first part of the season. Very little preparation in terms of the pre-season. So I don't think we're going to to be seeing those 5-0, 6-0 performances where they absolutely dismantle opposition too much. It's going to be a question of of getting the, the job done, getting three points um, both in the Champions League and Premier League, and they've and they've done that in those last two games, and I think that's I think that's a, a good a good thing. I don't think we we can look at making progress too much uh, and and how things are working until the squad is back to full strength, if it ever is, because obviously the schedule is so grueling. So um, yeah, job done. Two two good wins um, and keep City. In the position where they want to be. Yeah, I was going to say, Chris. It, it, I mean, it's no De Bruyne for those games, no Laporte for both games. You know, Aguero's operating at fifty percent or so. The City have coped well. Yeah, uh, this is where squad depth comes in, um, doesn't it? It's uh, I don't know about Aguero operating at fifty percent. Maybe starting around that, but you know, his percentage was hopefully that little fitness bar is progressing nicely with uh, with all of each passing minute. Um, we've done we've done well. De Bruyne, I don't even think he's injured, is he? He's just fatigued, and he because he. I think it's no coincidence that a couple of weeks ago he came out saying, um, you know, 
we're playing too many games. I I'm knackered, lads. <laughs> yeah, basically, well, he says, basically, we're playing too many games. I can foresee a situation in which I get injured. I can see lots of injuries coming in the future. And I think it's to that, you know, uh, with that in mind that he's gone over to, um, what's his face, Belgian manager? Um, Martinez. Martinez, Roberto, and, and said, like, look, I'm absolutely blowing here, mate. It's just not going to do anybody any good. Get me off. And he's demanded a rest. I'm speculating wildly, but I don't think he's, <laughs> there's, there's no specific injury been announced, has there? I don't know. John, have you heard no, anything? No, no, no specific injury. Just, uh, uh, just one of these niggles. <laughs> well, exactly. He's knackered. And, um, you know, who can blame him? We ask yeah. a lot of him. We ask a lot of all the players. They put it in when they can. I think that's a lot of the, pre- the reason... Um, you know, the high press, the constant high press that we kind of demand constant, well, constantly demand a constant high press. <laughs> but it's just not sustainable um, because people are too knackered to do it. I've, you know, I've had to agree with where I've seen that written and it's occurred to me as well. I was chatting to my dad about it and he was saying as well, like, I don't think De Bruyne's injured. He's just absolutely shot and yeah. needs a rest. So, yeah, we've done really well. Uh, it comes down to individual uh, nous and tactics, doesn't it? And we've we've shown that we can go toe-to-toe and slug it out and, you know, do the job. The thing, um, is, the thing is, though, Chris, it, it makes a change for City to actually look like they're going to take their chances because, like, other than the goals they scored against both Porto and Arsenal, there weren't that many other chances that they missed. And that's, that's, that's kind of a new thing for City recently. Yeah, which is good in that we're taking them, but bad in that, there weren't many other chances made, I guess. Um, but that's just, you know, it's it's a lot tighter game, so you kind of expect that. Like with the Arsenal game as well, it's, I suppose there's an element of luck if they're not scoring chances when they make them. But there's a couple of big saves from Edison. Um, one of that, that Saka chance, nobody seems to mention, but in the build-up to that, Bernardo was blatantly pulled back. He looks so aggrieved of late, Bernardo. Nothing seems to be going for him. He gets think, fouls given against him for nothing. I think it's his hair. Fouled. Because his hair's long, he's able to run his hands through it and just look aggrieved. Yeah, and he's got that little sort of, um, you know, melting, <laughs> crestfallen expression that he does. But yeah, I feel really sorry for him. I don't know if that... Do you reckon that would have got brought back if it had gone in? No. Well, no. it should have, though, because it was a blatant foul, but yeah. The, um, I mean, the other uh, the other thing, John, is that um, for me that the other big part of these two wins, City were leading both games quite late on, and then they just took control of the game. That's something again we've not seen from City recently. No, you're right, um, and particularly that game against Leicester where they just collapsed. And I think Pep spoke about it after the game, saying that they they rushed it too much. We're trying to get find that second goal to kill off the game, which is obviously what City have done. For the last three seasons, they've gone one nil ahead and then gone on scored two, three, four. Um, whereas, you know, this is a different season to what we're used to, and uh, I think the Arsenal one was particularly probably the more impressive because you know it's just it's just a completely different Arsenal team under Arteta, and they've just got a lot so much more about them. They keep they kept going, kept pushing, and you know it's quite a, a rookie. Defense that City had, you know, Diaz and Ake, um, and they never really gave up 
any chances to in those final 10, 15 minutes. There's only, I mean, yeah. the, the only two I can think of, that was the Saka one-on-one that, that Chris mentioned and then the one-on-one uh, that Aubameyang had a few minutes later that was flagged offside but was wrongly offside. So it's a good save because if, yeah. it, if he hadn't saved it, it would have been VAR'd and, and checked and it had been given. Yeah, but they, they were both in the first half and obviously I think City were probably deservedly ahead but just got a way of seeing it through and getting the, getting the three points and getting the job done. I thought it was... I think they're going to have to do a lot more of that this season. So it was that was quite impressive. I suppose a little bit of a worry, though, Chris, was was quite how easily Porto found the net in the uh, in the opening stages of that game. Given that uh, Diaz gave the ball away, Rodri, you know, was just breezed past, and then Cancelo, you know, he was barely there for the for the bit to, to block the shot. Yeah, it was poor poor defending um, created by a really lax pass from Diaz, who yeah, I'm not a big not his biggest fan. Um, it's a bit weird. We seem to have this inescapable vibe to the Champions League, especially the, well, not especially, just generally in the Champions League. It's a weird kind of tempo adjustment that we don't seem able to to adapt to. I don't really get it, but I don't know. Cancelo, I, I rate him. Um, a lot of people are getting on his back and he's not doing particularly well. He seems to be playing like a man with a lot of, pressure on himself well on him I think mainly by himself because he's really trying too hard maybe and it's just affecting his decision making and I don't know he just he just didn't do the right thing did he in that situation he just got breezed past as did Rodri who's a you know he's a good player but a little bit a little bit slow yeah, I mean the, the the interesting thing from Cancelo, John, is I mean first off that that what was he doing against Arsenal? Because I still honestly watching on TV cannot work out where he was supposed to be playing and and what Pep had told him to do. Whatever it was, it worked really well. Um, but then like there's moments in these games where you just think, can you can you just be a bit stronger? Yeah, I felt a little bit sorry for him the goal against Porto as he's gonna block the shot. He's put his hands behind his back. And Diaz is then taking it on another step, and just just because of that, he's lost all his speed and momentum, and then he's been completely beaten. Um, and I just think if 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 he just shot and it hit his hand, it would have been a penalty, and that's where we are with this crazy rule. And that mm. you know, I don't like that, but that's that's what we have to do, and it makes Cancelo look really poor there. Uh, I mean, he wasn't brilliant, but that, that kind of just mitigating circumstances, yeah. yeah. I suppose it is easy to pick on players in these moments where you say, oh, we should have done this. But sometimes you're going to get beaten by a good player in a game, aren't you? Just when you're off balance, people can go past you and that, that kind of shit happens yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, It was a great run. I, mean, I don't think the gate, his performance against Porto was, was the best. I thought he was very, very strong against Arsenal. And it's quite noticeable. Obviously, I'm very fortunate to be in the stadium and there's no fans there. So you can hear the City bench. I sit very close to where the subs are and the coaching staff and things like that. And there's a real desire amongst them to constantly encourage Cancelo the whole time to to just drive him forward and to give him uh, belief that he's making a, a big impact. And he really thrives on that. Um, I thought he was very, very good against Arsenal. But yeah, it is very difficult to assess exactly what his role was, it was a sort of, yeah, half, half a, fr- a free role half. on the right, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm glad you've said that actually. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to pick up on what, what you were saying about the 
bench encouraging him. I'm glad you've said that because it kind of, um, I feel a bit vindicated in that he's playing as someone who is really desperately trying to do the right thing, and you know, but it does there does seem to be a lot of pressure on him, which I think that probably does reflect if they're all everyone's constantly trying to encourage you. It must be like you're obviously aware of that. And as, in, as helpful as that is, it probably is going to impre- increase the pressure that you put on yourself, and that's yeah. what I see. That's what I kind of get from him. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's ultra confident on the left hand side, um, which, which which doesn't help. You know, he he does seem very one footed in that he quite often will use the outside of his right foot rather than his left foot. Um, but also, a, a fullback for Guardiola is such a complicated position. You know, you. One minute you 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 sort of asked to move into central midfield position and and play play there, or another time you asked to go straight down the wing. Um, I don't think he had the greatest starts at the club. It's taken him a, a bit of time to settle. So I think there's a willingness that he's got everything to be a success, and that if they keep pushing him, that it's going to get there. And I think we saw towards the end of lockdown. And since, sorry, towards the end of, in the matches after lockdown, sorry, and also since the start of the season, that he's becoming an important part of the first team, not just a squad man now. Yeah, I'm, I want to also big up Kyle Walker because, uh, Chris, it was another pair of great performances from him. And uh, we're starting to get a running theme with these goal line clearances now. That was uh, He did it in the Community Shield, he did it at Stamford Bridge uh, and then he uh, last season, and then he, he did it again against Porto. Well, I think running theme is uh, two really accurate words for Carl Walker. He, he just uh, he just covers ground like nothing you've ever seen. He seems to get faster year by year, game by game. It's like it's like do not adjust your sets. He is <laughs> he is that rapid. Um, so it's not surprising that he's the one getting there last second a lot of the time. Yeah, really impressed with him. He's an absolute machine. That said, could it have been a penalty right at the death of the first half against Arsenal when he had a when he put his boot high in the air? I'm not having that. It depends which version of the game you're talking about. Like, I mean, I was chatting to a ref about this actually on uh, Sunday, and he was saying it's not a penalty. He's right, you know the ball's in the air. It's he's gone for the ball. He's touched the ball. He's not hit the player, um, he's pulled away when he thinks he might be hitting the player. So it isn't dangerous play because nothing's happened. It's like, what What would you be giving that for? I, but then, you know, there's modern interpretations um, where people would be like, oh, well, he's raised his foot. It's, you know, for me, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's just not, not a penalty. But, you know, there are a lot of ridiculous rules which I disagree with <laughs> in life and football. <laughs> so... I'm glad you added and football to the end of that. Um, John, I want, I want to touch on, uh, we, we touched on it briefly there, but uh, you were obviously in the stadium for the Arsenal game and uh, we were watching on TV. Did you Were you able to get any more of a sense of what Guardiola was actually doing with his selection and his, and his setup than, than we were from the, from the TV pictures? Because it, it just looked, honestly, it looked like organised chaos from, from the TV pictures, but it might have made sense when you can see the bigger picture. I don't know. I'd, I'd love to be able to say yes and um, and go through it with you, but uh, no, it was very confusing. Um, I mean, it is. I, I did watch Jamie Carragher on Monday Night Football, and he gave an interesting explanation of it. It is very much. I think it's almost like three different setups for different situations. You know, with the ball in your own half, with the ball on the attack, 
defending on defending uh, counter attacks that players are asked to take up different roles, um, and it's you know you can't really sit there and say and, and look at it and say right I'm going to watch this for twenty minutes and see exactly where anyone everyone's running because you know there's other things to look at as well. But I do really think that, that there's a, each player is given a bespoke responsibility of with the ball you stand here. Uh, you know, this is your area. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's certainly not disorganised. Um, it's not chaotic. They know what they're doing. Um, it's just... Just mere yeah. mortals like us can't really work it out. <laughs> when, you, when you've been brought up on four four two and knock it into the channels uh, at every opportunity, it's, it's completely different to, <laughs> to what you used to. You don't think there's a chance that maybe like his dog was ill, he's not done his homework, and he's just gone, just go out and enjoy it, lads. I've not done, I've not done any prep for this. I think there were a few factors. I think one thing, for instance, was that Aguero, I think, was taking off a little bit of responsibility for pressing high, and I think the high press was important. So it was almost like with the ball, Aguero was a number nine, and then dropped to a number ten or number eight without the ball, and then it was Foden, Sterling. Uh, Mares leading the the high press, um, like you say, Cancelo moving all over the pitch, you know, playing playing on the centre circle sometimes, and then the, as an Orthodox fullback, it was just, yeah, it was Ake was centre half at times, and then the left left back, left wing back at times. It was yeah, great fun, <laughs> yeah. Guardiola likes it. The fans. Don't like it as much. Uh, what are the what are the pros of having Gundogan and Rodri in the in that double pivot role as a central pair? I think it gives them a bit more control and a bit more protection. Um, I think we've seen the the, the back three or four uh, picked picked open by Leon and Arsenal in those sort of games where they aside a quick on the counter attack and it gives them a little bit of more protection to stop it before it becomes a, a bigger a bigger issue um, and. and Going back to what I said before, really, I just don't think City are going to be able to win games three or four nil. So, they've, one of the key things is to stop the opponents getting chances because so often when you get a chance against City, it's a good chance. Um, so, if it, you know if they can stop it in their own half, uh, the odd tactical foul here and there, I just think it gives them more control. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the question is though, Chris. I mean. Could could Gundogan do that role on his own? I mean, I think back to the end of that eighteen nineteen season where uh, Fernandinho went off at Old Trafford. Uh, City was still going for the Premier League for the FA Cup. They just won the League Cup, and like everyone was was really downbeat at the fact that they'd lost Fernandinho and the man that would anchor the midfield. There, Rodri hasn't really done that role on his own particularly well. Gundogan came in at the end of that season, did it perfectly fine. So, could could that not be an option for this season? It's an option. I don't know whether whether he's quite got the metal for um, you know DM linchpin. Um, I think people would target him a bit. It might have worked at the time, but you know people are a bit wiser to what we've got in our locker and in terms of things like that. I wouldn't be massively confident with that. I'm not massively confident with him and Rodri, to be honest. Uh, just lacks a bit of the dynamism, dynamism that uh, Fernandinho brings. So, yeah, it's a bit of a gut wrencher to see him go off so quickly against Porto. Interestingly, um, 
you know, you were saying earlier about what you can hear from pitch side. It was something that was widely shared during the the game. Apparently, he was Fernandinho that is berating the Porto players in yeah. in Portuguese, and then he came on and got injured straight away. That's a little bit, you know, pride coming before a. A fall. fall. Yeah. How, how is your Portuguese, John? Could you understand much of it? <laughs> I couldn't. I, I, I could understand there was a lot of aggro between both benches, um, but I think most of it was prompted by the referee, who was an absolute shocker. But not just—he wasn't biased or anything like that. He was just terrible all round. Um, he was just giving very, very strange decisions. Yeah, or not. Yeah, he just I, looked like he was out of his depth. Well, just on that, were, do you reckon, John, that City were lucky to get the penalty that they got? Because I, I, I watched that back, and on any other day, you can understand the VAR giving a foul against Gundogan. Yeah, I thought it was. Yeah, he stood on his leg. I didn't think. I didn't. I thought that would be overturned. It wasn't. Equally, I also thought that Pepe would have been sent off for his shove on. Well, can you call it a shove? I don't know what you call it. It was a knee in the back, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Into Sterling. I mean, I don't understand why VAR hasn't called that up. Um, but no, I. I didn't think it, I didn't think it was a penalty. What is it with Pepe? Like, is he <laughs> is he a truly evil being, or is he just so method when he's playing like the <laughs> the pitch villain? I mean, he looks like the hardest narc in like a Bolivian prison or something. I don't know. He's just horrible, isn't he? He's it, and he's one of these. He'll go over. Someone's faking an injury, and he's the first one over to like pretend to check that they're okay he's just like like i say he's just like really method in terms of his uh <laughs> villainism yeah i don't know well, he's like a he's like wwe isn't he he's just yeah he, he's, he's quite happy to also fake an injury yeah he, it's all for show who, yeah he's probably but, really nice you know <laughs> does a lot of charity yeah. <laughs> We're getting into territory that I didn't expect to, so let's uh, let, let, let's kind of carry on. Um, Chris, be honest with me now. Uh, it, it, we all said at the time it was a good free kick from Gundogan, but if if you were uh, in the defending side and you turn around and watch me let that goal in, would you be happy? Um, well, uh, the, you could say that the keeper is a little bit too far over. Um, the ball isn't isn't right in the corner. It's not hitting the side netting, is it? But I mean, it's a great free kick. It's not the fastest, but you, you know, you, you, by the same token, sorry, that was a bit of a squeaky noise. So you can edit, <laughs> edit that out. But by the same token, it's a good free kick. And if he saves that, it's like an absolute wonder save. So I, I think it's uh, I think it's slightly overly critical of the keeper and detracting from the, the dead ball skills employed by uh, Gundogan to suggest that that, perhaps shouldn't have gone in. Uh, I think that's maybe a little bit bit harsh. Fair enough. Uh, other, just touching on the other goals, uh, Torres with the third goal, John, uh, it was a great bit of link-up between him and Foden. Yeah, it was a really lovely goal, that. Um, when I was looking at the stats and, you know, City aren't getting too many goals away from Aguero, Sterling Mares. Foden perhaps chips in a bit, but with, uh, with Jesus and De Bruyne injured, um, it was good to see them come up with that goal and you know it was a lovely bit of skill from Torres um, we've not seen a lot of him so far um, he's obviously getting in the Spain team so maybe we might see a little bit more of him over the next couple of weeks it feels we'll- like he's growing into the team yeah um, yeah I think he's 
I think the comparisons are going to be with with Sane inevitably because he's kind of a a like for like replacement, and you know, I think he's forgotten how good Sane was. Perhaps um, you know, it's a big comparison to live up to, but um, yeah, he's, he's he he looked good against Burnley in the cup. You know, he thought he had a very very strong game there, and we've not seen too much of him since then. And then. Yeah, it was a big impact last night and a really nice finish. Yeah, and uh, the opener against uh, Arsenal, well, the only goal against Arsenal, uh, Chris, uh, it, again, that was all about the build-up. It was uh, it was just a shame that it wasn't Foden that put it in, really, that it that it was a save from the goalkeeper and Sterling put it in because everything else before it was so good. Yeah, I think Foden just needs to be a little bit more, you know, like eye of the tiger in front of goal. Um, a lot of people raving about the Mares pass, which was nice, but I prefer, I mean, for me, the, the Aguero pass, the weight on it, it calculated what Foden needed to do, and he kind of made his decision for him with the, you know, the step inside just from the weight of the pass. Uh, it's pretty standard from from Mares. I expect that kind of quality from him cutting in on the left. But uh, yeah, great, great play all round. To be fair, and just a shame that, like you say, uh, Foden didn't bag. He's had a couple of chances like that, hasn't he? Where he had one against another one against Arsenal, only where yeah, he got yeah. stuck under his feet. Yeah, and he looks. Yeah, it just just needs a little bit more, um, you know, cold blood in that situation. Yeah. Uh, before we move on uh, to the next part of the show, I just want to touch on the uh, Aguero incident with uh, Sean Marcielis. What what did you make of that, Chris? Um, to be honest, I was a bit a bit uncomfortable with it at the time, but it's hard to know whether that is because you know that people are going to absolutely jump all over it. Uh, the, I mean, the, you shouldn't be touching the officials at all. Is there a different attitude to it because it's a female official? Probably. Um, you know, his hand seemed to be... He shouldn't have done it. Um, he knows he shouldn't have done it. I thought she reacted well by not reacting. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether it's because she was saying... Uh, glaring straight forward and not engaging him at all that he did you know try to get a reaction out of her I think uh, we should probably just say yeah he shouldn't have done it draw a line under it if it happens again maybe we've got a problem I imagine it won't so we haven't yeah, I was going to say, uh, in that sense, uh, John, as well. Like, like the aftermath was that was photographs of players touching male referees and assistants all the time. So, I mean, is there a difference? Well, there is a difference. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a male assistant referee, is it? So we're talking, it is different, and it didn't look particularly great. Um, so, yeah, completely agree with what Chris says. Um, you have to learn from it, and and if he does it again, it's it's an issue. Um, but you know, I think we have to listen to um, female officials who who want to be part of the game, and if they feel uncomfortable with that situation, then it's not acceptable. But I mean, we've got an issue with the way that we treat uh, referees throughout football, particularly grassroots level. You know, they some of the things they have to put up with on a Sunday morning. From from players is uh, it's, you know it's just completely unacceptable. So yeah, it's, it's important that we set the tone from the from the top down and from the Premier League down. So uh, I think it's I think it was right to be discussed and and I, I think I think that I don't think it was t- too much was made of it. I think that's it was about right. I think yeah. 
yeah. to be fair to her as well she is like one of the one of the best officials that you see some some people you, you see who's uh officiating you think oh god not this guy and she's generally uh absolutely superb and probably has to be has probably had to be to get I, where I she is that, a lot that, better that's probably a sad indictment of where we are as well really isn't it that, yeah that she has to be that um Right, you ready for this? This is this is proper, probably one of the biggest gear changes we've ever done on this show. So are you ready? It's like I'll pu- push the clutch in and get the, get it cranked going. Um, Let's get my seatbelt on. Yeah, there we go. Uh, this weekend, City travelled to West Ham, who a few years back moved out of Upton Park and onto the Olympic Stadium. 20 years ago this Friday, City played their final match at Southampton's The Dell before it was closed down. That was a 2-0 win, thanks to goals from Paul Dickoff and Danny Tiato. In recent years, there have been plenty of old stadiums that have closed, and I've been looking at some of City's recent final games on grounds that no longer exist. When it comes to City's final matches at a stadium, their record, let's be honest, isn't great. Of the 25 grounds they've played at that have closed in the Premier League era, City have won just five times on their last visit, and that includes a defeat in their final ever game at their own Main Road Stadium too. Club legend Sean Gota was the captain for that 1-0 loss against Southampton. It was about trying to contain the emotions. I'm seeing banners, sort of saying, feed the girls, we love you girls. And, and, and I'm looking and thinking, you know, this is, this is the last game at Main Road. And people found the knees to put banners of Sean Gooder on, the, on this historical day. And, I, and, and that's what hit me, that, that's them showing their love and appreciation of me. So that was emotional to see that. The Goats scored in some of City's final visits to other grounds too. In 1998, he got the only goal of the game at Colchester's Leia Road Stadium at a time when he was still not a fan's favourite. In the first year and a half, I was getting serious to from from the City fans. So much so that when they used to call out players' numbers, you know, number nine, Sean Gooder, or, or ten, Paul Dickoff, the crowd used to boo me. And I had that pretty much for the first year, year and a half. But it was my goals and my endeavour that, that, that turned that around. Three years later, he scored in a 2-1 City win at Leicester's Filbert Street. That was a remarkable afternoon with two very strange goals. Tim Flowers was between the posts for Leicester. The one I thought you was going to say was um, Paolo Onechop. I, I don't remember the Sean Go. I remember Paolo Onechop um, at Filbert Street backheeling one from about six shows, facing away from the goal, and he's backheeled it and, and beat me down in the bottom corner. I can't remember the Sean Gota one. Listen, that many goals went past me. It's hard to remember them all, do you know what I mean? He says it's no surprise that Gota scored with his back that day. Sean could score off all parts of his body. He had a he had a tendency to to a choke a shot and scuff it. And as you beat your hand and you look round, it had gone in that little bottom square net by the post. And he, he had an unerring knack of doing that. He was, a, he was a top striker. But I can't remember the one off his back, but I certainly remember one chop. Beat me with a back heel at Filbert Street, yeah. Other memories of final stadium visits are less successful. Before Wigan moved to what's now the DW Stadium, City had to go to their Springfield Park ground in the 1999 Division 2 playoff semi-finals. It started badly, with a mix-up between goalkeeper Nicky Weaver and defender Gerard Vikins. They both explained themselves to the podcast a few years back. The Crooks, he, uh, he threw in and he, uh, he threw it to me, but the ball was very fast. I wanted to clear it, so I shouted keepers to Gerard, but then I thought he shaped like he was going to clear it. I pretended it, just kick it up upfield, but uh, I thought it's it's the ball's quick enough to uh, to go to the keeper, so Nicky can pick the ball up and we, we keep possession. So I've backed off thinking he was going to take matters into his own hands and clear it, 
He sort of like stepped over it. And the striker was Barlow. He got the ball and he, uh, he scored. That was after something like 20 seconds. Paul Dickoff's equaliser was the very last goal scored at Springfield Park and Vikings was the first to congratulate him. Gerard didn't have to thank me or apologise because he was outstanding that season. Um, and it was a really uncharacteristic mistake for him. You know, and obviously we, we got back in it. We're probably unlucky not to win the game. We all know what happened next as City got through to the playoff final and won promotion against Gillingham. That 1998-99 season also saw some others of the club's final visits to now-defunct stadiums. First, it was Darlington and Feetums in the FA Cup. Goalkeeper David Priest played against City that night. I remember Paul Dickoff scoring a late equaliser at Feetums to take it to that second game and um, it was a tough time for, for City at that moment. They, they weren't really doing well in, in what was League One. Yeah, it was, a, it was a real sort of turning point, I feel anyway, looking back on it, a real turning point for City. City eventually won the replay at Main Road. Considering the state of our pitch at Phoenix at the time, which was, it, it, it had been better served as uh, for growing potatoes really, but we played some good football under David Hodgson, we had some experience in there alongside some real good young players and, um, and it was a real good test for where we were at that time and the really experienced side that City had, um, you know, it's perhaps not the same names that are at the club at this current uh, time but it certainly was full of experience as well. Also in that season there was an unlikely scorer in City's final league visit to Chesterfield Saltergate. They go on to lose there under Stuart Pearce in the League Cup in 2006 but back in 1998 Lee Crooks scored his first goal for the club on that ground. I can remember Joe telling me to go to the left hand side to play three at the back and I got the ball, I can't remember pass with the ball. And I was running down, and all I could hear was the gaffer absolutely hammering me. Pass the ball, pass the ball. And uh, so anyway, I just kept inside of, just give it a whack, and just, that was it. Just did it, and fortunately it went in. After the game, I came to the change room, and first thing Joe said to me, it's good job that went in, Crooksy. <laughs> You'd have been getting it now. Speaking of the League Cup and of Stuart Pearce's running the competition, his elimination the year before that trip to Chesterfield was also a final visit for City to an old ground. This was Doncaster and Bellevue, where City lost on penalties. Nader Manua was bizarrely sent off that night in 2005. I think we might have been winning the game at the time. I think a cross came into me and I took a very standard heavy touch towards the goalkeeper. <laughs> and then I slid in to uh, try and take the shot and then pulled my leg away. And I was just devastated. And then I think it went for a goal kick or something. I was devastated because I thought, oh, I can't believe I just missed that. And then I turned around and the rest got a red card. He says he had no idea why. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even see an incident. Thankfully, that was rescinded shortly after because seeing the replays, it was exactly as I, as I thought it was. It was, a, it was a trampoline touch. And then, as I say, <laughs> it wasn't the most composed of finishes. And I think the keeper, I think he actually broke his leg. But that was in him just colliding with me as opposed to me going in towards him. Let's finish with another strange incident, this time on City's final ever visit to Arsenal's Highbury. Winning 1-0, the home side were given a penalty their second of the game, and Robert Pires and Thierry Henry managed to miss by trying to pass the ball from the spot instead of taking a shot. Kieran Murray spoke on the podcast's Patreon show about that incident recently. I wouldn't like to have seen it because it's against City, but I, would, I love seeing different penalties, you know, I love seeing like a different style. So, you know, an assist style penalty where you like hit it to one side and then your mate comes in and, and uh, thwacks it, that would have been quite interesting to see. Many would say it was disrespectful. Sylvan Distan said as much in his interview with Match of the Day that night, and Kieran agreed. Does Danny Mills come in and clear yeah, it? Yeah, Danny Mills hits it further than I've ever seen anybody hit a, hit a ball after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely rose head. But that's what it is. 
when people do try those novelties against you, you feel hard done by, you feel disrespected. It was really looking down their nose if they were going to try that sort of muck against us, you know, so so uh, fair play to Mills, one of the only good things he's ever done. These are just a few examples of City's final visits to now defunct stadiums, but the truth is City's record isn't that great even recently. They drew their last games at West Ham's Berlin ground, Sunderland's Roker Park and Derby's baseball ground, while they lost their final trips to Coventry's Highfield Road, Bolton's Burnden Park and Middlesbrough's Ayrson Park. It's probably a good job there are no final visits coming up at the moment. Hi, this is Ian Bishop. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. I look there at City's recent games at now defunct stadiums. Uh, so it's time to look ahead to uh, games with West Ham and Marseille. Uh, John, the first place to start with this really is... Uh, I mean, we've not heard yet from Guardiola ahead of this game, but uh, injuries-wise, I reckon everybody's going to be braced for this, aren't they? Yeah, it's not looking good again. Uh, obviously, Fernandinho was a another significant injury um, from the game against Porto. I think after the game, Pep said that Laporte and De Bruyne are ready to start training, but obviously not much time before the West Ham game a lunchtime kickoff on a Saturday, so it's going to be difficult for them. Uh, who Mendy, else? Jesus, yeah. Ake was uh, was missed the Porto game. I think I think Jesus and Mendy are definitely going to be a way off. Uh, Ake maybe slightly slightly sooner. Yeah, it's going to be. He's not going to have a lot of choice again for West Ham. I mean, the interesting one is is um, who does he play at centre back? Obviously, slightly surprising Garcia started against Porto, given his situation, uh, and Stones on the bench. So maybe that might be one, one alteration. Yeah, I mean, Chris, like we we talked about it before. You know, John used the phrase "survival of the fittest." It is. I mean, it is a case of getting through these games, getting the job done, and and kind of conserving energy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and West Ham are a very uh, quite a physical team, so that's going to take it out of us. Going to need a lot of concentration, a lot of physicality. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you'd imagine we'd have, if we play to the top of our game, we'd have too much for West Ham. But um, watching them against Spurs, they they were worth getting back into that game. They, they you know, they kept plugging away, and um, they've got some good players. And yeah, they're going to be pretty tough opponents. I was going to say, it's. I mean, like this is a side that's just come from three 0 down against Spurs, who have been. They've been playing well this season, Spurs. To to, to be fair to them, um, and you know that before that there was a, they've had a couple of good wins while David Moyes was at home. So I mean, it's it, it's not going to be an easy tie this, John. As much as it's a place that City liked to go in recent years. No, not at all. I mean, to be honest, I did turn off the Spurs game after twenty minutes. I didn't bother watching any more of it. So I only saw the <laughs> I only saw the goals. Um, yeah, they're a weird team. They have got good players. Uh, Antonio, I think he's absolutely superb, dangerous to any yeah. team. Uh, Declan Rice alike. Um, I mean, defensively, you can get that at them, uh, and that's you know, uh, it is a place where City they've had some absolutely fantastic performances there. Something about that stadium. I mean, it, it's it's an awful, awful stadium. It's just massive bowl. <laughs> I, I mean, what it's going to be like empty. I guess actually, it's probably not going to be a lot different to what it's like when it's full because it's just so far away from. 
they just like it there. So, is it true that you don't have monitors in the press box either? You have you have monitors in the press box, yeah. Uh, I mean, you have to because you can't see the pitch. <laughs> I, was say, I, I, I seem to remember somebody complaining that they couldn't get a replay of something that happened on the pitch, and it was like five miles away. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's one of those where it's, you're so far away that when you when someone kicks the ball, you, you hear it about three seconds later. That's it. I mean, joking aside, I feel really sorry for the West Ham fans because they're stuck there. Uh, and I, I just don't understand how it was allowed to happen where somehow Manchester got a, a brilliant blueprint of how to do it, to build a stadium for an athletics event and then turn it into a great football stadium. And West Ham have been left with this soulless bowl, which is just not fit for purpose. I it's feel very that, sorry for the West Ham fans. It's all about that running track, I think, isn't it? If you, You've got to take that running track out and get the fans well, closer to the pitch. Yeah, well, of course, we need an athletics track because of all those, you know, those fantastic athletics events that hundreds of thousands of people go to every year. <laughs> After coming from Upton Park as well, what a what a change around! Yeah, yeah, terrible. Yeah, I mean, Chris, when you see when you see West Ham away on the fixture list, like in recent years, again, it's been it's been a happy hunting ground for City. Do you feel a bit more comfortable after having you know just seen? City go through a, a fixture list that read, you know, Wolves, Leicester, Leeds, Arsenal. Well, when I see them on the fixture list, <clears throat> the first thing I think of is the songs of Wham, which is always, <laughs> uh, you know, a bit of a pleasure. But um, yeah, th- th- it has been a happy hunting ground. Uh, I think what we were saying earlier in that they have got good players, but uh, you can get at them is very accurate. They're going to be, they're going to have to be at the very top of their game to pass their way through the press as some. Uh, teams have found a little bit of joy with against us but have they got that ability from the back hopefully not yeah um, I'm trying to think of a wham pun but I can't (laughs) all all I could think of was was if you want wham puns then Chris is your man but it doesn't really (laughs) really stack up does it (laughs) no no we should have prepared better for that sorry about that Um, just came to me yeah, I, John City have got a win uh, now under the belt against Arsenal. They obviously got that win against Porto on uh, on Wednesday. Uh, how much of of this season is going to be about momentum and keeping that winning run going? Yeah, I think belief's very important. You know, I think they've they've suffered a bit of a crisis of confidence on the back of those defeats at the end of last season against Arsenal and uh, and Leon. You know, I it is a high risk way that they play. Um, and when you get punished, sometimes it's it can be hard to come back again and, and and believe in yourselves that we can defend on the halfway line or even higher uh, and still not concede. And uh, I think that's that that's been lost a bit, uh, particularly adding in the Leicester performance. So I think if they can string a few results together and a few games where they don't concede, yeah, momentum is going to be crucial. Now, here's a question, Chris, because uh, there's also the game with Marseille this week. Um, Mm. uh, Obviously, we touched on the Champions League and and, and City's problems with it a a tad earlier and a bit on last week's show as well. Um, I genuinely forgot on Wednesday that City were playing in the evening. um, And I can foresee the same sort of thing happening on Tuesday because it's, it's a Champions League group game. Fans aren't allowed to go. It feels like a like an overly inflated competition at this stage, anyway, because th- there's no real jeopardy if City don't win this game. They've still got four more games to get the, the points that they need. Um, so, can you help? Can you can you give me a reason why it's a crucial game? Um, well, in a word, 
No, no. I, can't, I, can't get, <laughs> I can't give you a reason why it's a crucial game, but you know, it's always uh, it's always a good. Uh, I've never got anything better to do than watch City when they play. Um, it's, it is it is a drudgerous affair, isn't it? The group stage of the, of the Champions League. Unfortunately, that's the, the nature of the beast. Um, don't worry, though. There'll soon be a, a massive uh, Super League with all the big teams in it, and <laughs> this will be a thing of the past. Yeah, I was gonna. I, I didn't want to bring it to that. Um, it, mm. it is a chance, though, John, to put some distance between the two sides. Marseille lost the first game to Olympiacos. Yeah, I think it's always important from Pep's point of view to qualify as soon as possible. Um, so he does sort of front load the competition, try and get those three, four wins out of the first first three, four games, and then and then it's done and dusted. Obviously, this time it's a little bit distant, different in that we've got these um, truncated fixtures where you've got three, three in three weeks, and then another three in three weeks. So if they can get if they can get it done in those first tranche of games, it, it, you know it's it could make a big difference towards the Premier League challenge. Yeah. Especially with, again, like you say, the, the fixture congestion. Um, right, well, we had our first win on the charity bet this season, so congratulations to Howard Hocking, who correctly predicted a 3-1 win over Porto. It means we've got £85 raised for the Christie so far, which is a cancer hospital in Manchester. And we've got two chances to add to that now with £10 correct score singles from William Hill on games against West Ham and Marseille. Um, John, I'm going to start with you. What have you got for uh, for both West Ham and Marseille? Uh, I... I think it's going to be tight in both games. So I've gone for 1-0 at West Ham to City and 1-0 at Marseille to City. Two 1-0 two wins. Uh, it's 9-1 to one against West Ham, so £90 if you're right there. And 15-2 to two against Marseille, so 75 quid if you're right. Uh, Chris, what are you having for both? Well, I normally go with some sort of weird mind-boggling gold fest, gold fest but I just thought I'd uh, calm it down a bit. And I've gone for 2-1 to City in both uh, in both is seven to one, so uh, seventy pounds if you get a pair of those right, and be one hundred and forty quid in total. And uh, I've gone for three one in both games, uh, which is seventeen to two and eighty five pounds against West Ham, and nine to one and ninety quid against Marseille. You've got to be eighteen or over to gamble. Prices can change. Please gamble responsibly. And if you'd like more on responsible gambling, have a look at begambleaware.org. Now it's time to move on, and we're going to hear from Howard Hawking on the difference in reaction to some key players' injuries. Hello there, so this is the City Podcast and I am talking about Liverpool as well as City. To be fair, David suggested I do, but truth is, they just leave rent free in my head and all that. But hey, after the weekend, it is hard to avoid them. Yep, they're still whinging. Woe is them, how dare bad things happen to them or something go against them. At least there has been another match to break it all up, at least temporarily, so that the press can instead hail Fabinho as the second coming. Liverpool and VAR, name a more iconic duo, so often the beneficiaries of the system, but now that it is perceived to have gone against them, finally some in the press wake up and question the system and demand change. Naturally, to do so involves cherry-picking. Liverpool themselves should have had two red cards during the game. Mane did enough to receive one, including his traditional fake fall to the ground, after pretending he'd been kicked in the head, which he hadn't, before deliberately tripping up an Everton player, he did get a yellow during the match, so he should have got more, as should Robertson, who should have received a straight red for a disgusting lunge that the BT commentary team were all too happy to gloss over. Move on, nothing to see here. And let us not forget that Van Dyke committed two roughhouse tackles himself in the opening few minutes of the match. 
No booking, obviously. You don't want to ruin a match by booking players that early, eh? And remember too that after Sadio Mane was sent off for placing his studs in Edison's head, and Edison was booed by the away supporters who stretched it off, Jurgen Klopp claimed after the game that there hadn't even been contact. Of course all managers are hypocrites, they will not come out and condemn their own. It would, in their mind at least, likely cause a mass discontent in the dressing room. But I do find it bizarre the reluctance of managers to accept decisions against them. What do they think they lose by saying they didn't deserve that penalty or that player deserved to get sent off? Do they think it reflects badly on their job as a manager? Well of course it doesn't as it wasn't them on the pitch and we can all see what happened anyway so why lie? Why twist the truth? Why turn a blind eye? Why put the blinkers on every time? For team morale? Seems a stretch to me. Anyway, perhaps the biggest story of the Merseyside derby was the injury to Virgil van Dijk. Compare and contrast the media coverage when the likes of Kevin De Bruyne and Emmerich Laporte got injured, and naturally you will see oceans separating it. Injuries are part of football, and every team has had serious ones. It's why clubs have squads after all, not 11 players. But for Liverpool they have their excuse for anything that may go wrong in the future. Were City excused when De Bruyne was out? Were City excused for finishing second last season when Laporte was out? Of course not, though we went on to win the league anyway with De Bruyne, without crying along the way. There are caveats though, how the injury happened for starters. It was in a Merseyside derby. He was wiped out. There were other bad tackles in the match in a sport that has become so sanitised in recent times. It's helped fuel the narratives and maintain the media coverage. And another caveat is the vagaries of the rules and regulations that does not allow for retrospective action on Pickford, as officials are deemed to have seen the incident at the time. No, really. That in itself fuels new anger. Only Ben Thatcher, after all, can be banned by ignoring the rules. We all know that. Look, if De Gea taking out Kevin De Bruyne, causing a potentially career-threatening injury, wasn't even sent off at the time, then didn't even get a ban at a later date, we would be fuming too. But as we also know, there have been numerous incidents of extremely dangerous tackles by Liverpool players that have also escaped punishment. Swings and roundabouts, surely. Still, I hear Mark Bosnich thinks Liverpool should be allowed to whinge and have a little cry every day until Van Dijk is fit. But us City fans perhaps see comparisons through slightly blue blinkers, truth be told, because Van Dijk's injury is potentially very serious indeed. The Athletic reported that there could be damage beyond the crucial ligament. Van Dijk will essentially miss an entire season, at least. He will be in his 30s by the time he returns. If he gets fitness back, it will still take time to get back to what he was, and it's entirely plausible he never will. Ilkay Gundogan has spoken in the past about how it took him a year to trust his body again after a serious injury. Just look at Benjamin Mendy right now. Does he still trust his body to do what he used to? Is he scared that by overexerting himself he will suffer another major injury? He's certainly prone to the standard muscle injuries now more, much more than he used to be. This is bad for Van Dijk and I take no pleasure in saying it. And it is worse than any injury that City have suffered. De Bruyne and Laporte were not out for a season. De Bruyne missed a few months, but was still involved in 32 games in all competitions that season, and half of the league games. Laporte featured in 20 games last season, and boy did City miss him for a good few months. Their injuries weakened City's team, as they had to, they are pivotal players, but they alone did not derail seasons, and the players thankfully were often back playing as normal quicker than many predicted, De Bruyne especially. And as I've already said, how the players were injured is relevant too when looking at the coverage of this week. Kevin De Bruyne picked up his first injury in that season in training, not by being poleaxed in a derby. He came back and then picked up another against Fulham. Laporte's injury was fairly innocuous too. 
And as much as we would like to claim that Trent Alexander-Arnold took out Sane in the Community Shield, and that meant he ended up injuring him with a hatchet job with him being out for most of the season, it hardly compares to what Pickford did, to be honest. Still, we know the coverage would be different even if the circumstances had been very similar. City are Oil's rich state-owned mercenaries who pick up £16 million players on a weekly basis. If they get a serious injury, they shouldn't moan about it. They can just replace him with another expensive import or buy another one. Whereas Liverpool have risen to the top of the game with a net spend equal to a bag of peanuts, dry roasted, and with pluck and desire and skill and flags and songs, back where they belong. A big injury is cruel luck. Doesn't happen to anyone else, just them. It's totally unfair and means Klopp must now manage with one hand tied behind his back. Obviously, he and his billionaire owners, who wish day and night to leave the Premier League and set up their own Super League that forbids relegation or cocky upstarts beating them, could have bought an extra defender in the summer to accommodate for such a situation like this. But it seems only City failed to sort out defensive issues. But the week long crying from Liverpool could have serious repercussions. Look, all fan bases have crazy fans. Those that go too far on a regular basis insult players for very little or nothing. We know Carrius, though, received death threats after the Champions League final. And you have to be concerned for Jordan Pickford right now. He will get abuse, as it is. But Virgil van Dijk is never the same player again. Playing in the same city means his time could be tough in Liverpool. The hyperbole of the last few days what was ultimately just a poor attempt, a very poor attempt, to block an anticipated shot and goal, could have profound consequences. Raheem Sterling knows this all too well. He's discovered this since he dared leave a certain club and its cabal in the media began their campaign of vitriol. It is unacceptable and more in the media and ex-players with a voice need to engage their brain before speaking in the future because their words have consequences. Anyway, all this is just a warm-up for poppy-wearing season. Consider it a loosener for the real faux outrage and willy-waving that is about to occur on many social media platforms. Size is everything, after all. I'm Clyde Tilsley. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, Barmy and I, Barcelona, all that. Yeah, that Clyde Tilsley. Um, you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Enjoy. <laughs> This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Howard Hawking, and we're going to finish with Ask the Panel. Uh, get in touch with your questions on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email them in through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. And we're also on Instagram if you want to send us a message on there. Just search for Blue Moon Podcast. Uh, first up is Stuart Entwistle on Twitter. Uh, he asks, Are City just a bit boring? Barring early on against Wolves, there's no spark and no drive. I didn't see the Leeds game as the best one old draw ever either. Uh, I should point out as well that this question came in pre-Arsenal uh, but the last two games do kind of fit that same pattern, job. Yeah, I think a bit boring is probably a, a bit strong. Um, you know, it's got three goals at Wolves is a, is, a, is pretty good by anyone's standards um, and although they lost to Leicester it was still seven goals in that game so um, I mean, I the Leeds game I thought was a weird one. There's a lot of people saying how fantastic it was and stuff like that. I I I didn't think there was a particularly a lot of quality about that game. I thought it was a bit a bit harem scare and a bit all over the place. That's probably uh, why neutrals enjoyed it though. Yeah, and probably yeah, why know, City fans didn't. But I just, I just thought for it was a, a game that had been sold on the two best coaches in the world, and I think 
it wasn't the coaching that seemed to stand out to me. It was more uh, two sides. Just it was like it was like two heavyweights just punching each other, uh, and neither of them going down. Um, Do you think maybe they cancelled each other out, Pep and Bielsa, and so it just came down to players. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's what it was. But there were certainly chances in the game. I don't think I don't think it was a, a boring game. No, There's plenty of chances in that. Um, but yeah, I just think this season's going to be. It's just unlike any other season. Um, and it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, just see, I'm going to brush sides aside, brush teams to the side like they they have done. There aren't going to be these big wins, five nils, six nils, um, and even if they get themselves into a situation where they're three nil up, we might see the likes of De Bruyne and Aguero and Sterling coming off and and having a rest, even if it's just for half an hour. Yeah. To be fair, people were calling us boring when we were sweeping teams aside 6 0. It was like, oh, all you do is keep the ball, score loads of goals, and pass people to death. <laughs> and people were literally calling that boring. So I don't know. It's, it's quite exciting not knowing what the hell's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you weren't saying that in the 90s, though, were you? I'm sure. Um, no, I certainly wasn't. David Sturman on Twitter asks, uh, What are City trying to prove with the Eric Garcia situation? Um, I, before we answer this question, I just want to have a listen to this. This is uh, Pep Guardiola speaking after the game uh, against Porto uh, about Garcia and his future. And uh, it is, it's, it's short and sweet, but um, it, it kind of suggests something. I know he won't leave, but uh, he's going to stay. And maybe we can seduce him in this year to 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 extend the contract with us. So uh, yeah, he's a, a guy who is so stable, is so stable in in many many things, and uh, yeah, we are so happy. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. So Chris, um, maybe seduce him for a new contract. Do you see that happening? Um. Without listening to that, you'd just say, well, no, he wants to go, but it is very odd to, you know, say he wants to leave, he's staying, we might make, you know, he might sign a new contract. Obviously, there's a lot going on behind there, the burn closed doors, uh, stable doors even, he kept saying he was stable, um, <laughs> strong and stable in many ways. I don't know why. Why? What is going on there? Personally, I think um, he's a little bit slow, and he's got a bit of a, a mistake in him. Do you have any people. issue with him being played ahead of someone like John Stones, who like Garcia wants to leave, and like there's a, there comes a point where you know City are going, well, why are we not get? Why or fans are going, why are we not giving a chance to John Stones, who you know wants to try and play for this team instead of Garcia, who wants to get out of it? Honestly, I think it's really weird, yeah. Uh, maybe he's playing some kind of psychological long game to try and bring the best out of Stones and he's saying those things knowing Stones will listen and Garcia is going to go. Uh, maybe he thinks Barcelona are going to fall away um, and he won't want to go there and we're going to be on the up and they're not. I don't, really, I don't get it. I don't. I said before about John Stones, though, he, I think he needs to be... A bit meaner and like be banging the door down and you know I mean I, I can't explain it I, I acknowledge how weird it is and I, I can't think of any other explanation than that that I've just listed in terms of maybe he's just trying to you know play a few mind games with Garcia and with Stones to try and get the best out of the situation for for City I mean what, yeah. what do you think I mean that that said John um 
I, I don't actually have a problem with him playing Garcia because of the sheer volume of games that are, that are coming up. He's going to have to rotate his team at some point. Garcia's here for this season, come what may, so he may as well be useful. Yeah, he is going to have to rotate his team. And I think Garcia is someone he trusts to play as a left-sided centre-back. Obviously, Ake and Laporte both out, uh, and they're going to be available, you know, you would hope, most of the time. Um I do. I, I can understand fans' frustrations, though, that Stones is is not part of the picture when he when he wants to fight for his place and is still determined to be a success at City. And as whereas Garcia has made it pretty clear that he wants to go back to Barcelona, so I can completely understand the frustrations over that. Final question comes from uh, Andrew Higginbottom on the emails. I'm guessing no relation, Chris. Um, no, but he sounds like a stand-up guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think this team would benefit from a player with the spirit of someone like Pablo Zabaleta. Do you think there'd be room for him at City as a coach now that he's retired? Also, give us your favourite Zabaleta moments. So it's a, it's a nice place to finish. John, uh, room for him on the coaching staff, do you reckon? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of coaches <laughs> there already, but... <laughs> They do have one of the biggest teams in the Premier League. Um, I I know what he means. I do think that City have lost a lot of leadership in recent years. You know, company, um, David Silva was a big influence in the dressing room. And uh, sometimes they just need that that drive that Zabaleta brought. um, And, you know, I don't see too many players in the squad who quite do what he did for City, um, so he is a he is a big miss, and I think he's he's a very intelligent guy. So it would it'd be great to have him back at the club. Um, in terms of favourite moment, I think mine would probably be Roma away. His goal at Roma yeah. away, I think it was uh, it was great to see his just his joy of that moment. That's what that's what Zabalata brought. It, it just you could just see when everything meant so much to him, and and also I thought. The one at the, his goal away at Sunderland when he took the ball under his shirt. Was just a, Is that just announced a when he sweet... when his missus was pregnant? Yeah, it was just a sweet moment. Though. Yeah. Uh, did you get to interview him much? Well, yeah. I mean, towards the towards the uh, last couple of seasons when he was at City, uh, we go into the mix zone where the players come through and we try and grab one of them for a, a quick conversation. And it got to the stage where it was it was pretty much Zabaleta and nobody else because nobody else was interested in talking or pretended not to speak English like, like, uh, like David Silver who's probably fluent probably by quote, that yeah. yeah could probably quote Shakespeare quite happily but, uh, <laughs> could just about say the words not today yeah. uh, favourite moments from, from Zabaleta Chris anything anything spring to mind well, I would have said the uh, the Roma the Roma moment, so that is uh, is certainly one. But basically, any time he received um, a life threatening head wound and just <laughs> carried on, uh, I mean that that says it all about him. He, he had such a a passion for the for the game and for the club, and he was able to. I think he was able to uh, extract a bit more out of himself, which inspires uh, quite literally on some occasions. Quite literally, yeah. But, but he's able to shirt. extract. Yeah, he's able to extract a bit more when he when you see that in, in one of your teammates. It enables you to, you know, get an extra level out of yourself. So he's uh, 
you know, an inspiration. I'd have him on the coaching staff. I'd have him on the coach, even driving it. Just get, yeah, get, get him <laughs> get, involved. Get him around the place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, so that brings this week's Blue Moon podcast to a close. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, then don't forget to give it a rating and a review in all the usual places because it helps other people find us and it helps us to pay the bills with the ads. If you'd like to help out further, you can get yourself some extra Blue Moon podcast material by signing up to become a Patreon backer. For as little as $2 each month, you can get a new bonus show each week. We always say they'll be at least 15 minutes long, but they're usually in the region of 20 to 30 minutes anyway. And they're all on random city topics. This week, we've followed the recent theme and spoken about players who have featured for both City and West Ham. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Thanks to my guests, Chris Higginbottom. Thank you very much for having us. And Jonathan Smith. Thank you. I'll be back next week, so I'll see you then. was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.